W. H. R. Rivers. Some Recollections. By Arnold Bennett. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Footnote. Such was the obscurity of this great man that when these recollections of him were printed in the New Statesman, the editor deemed it prudent to append a footnote explaining who W. H. R. Rivers was. End of footnote. It was Siegfried Sassoon who introduced me to this really great swell. He said solemnly, you must know him. You'll like him. Other young men spoke of Rivers in the same tone. He was a hero of the First Order to many, so we met at the Reform Club. A man of insignificant aspect, small with a reddish nose indicating an imperfect ability to deal with his waste products, a quiet voice, capable of silences without self-consciousness. The result of this first meeting was negative, as indeed was quite right. Sound friendships rarely begin with violence. I can remember nothing that he said. I noticed only his simple, deep modesty, and that he ate little and drank water, and didn't smoke. My one indictment of Rivers is on the score of his nourishment. I always begin by mistrusting a man who does not enjoy eating and drinking. I recall that once I got him to drink half a glass of claret, and actually to smoke a cigarette. The next day I tried again. No, he said, I don't think I'll indulge today. I want the pace yesterday. Then I went to stay with him once or twice amid the fantastically ugly neo-Gothic architecture in the back part of St. John's College, Cambridge, where you lie awake at nights listening to the tinny strokes of multitudinous and absurd public clocks. I saw his bedroom one night. It was very spartan. The study was large and of agreeable aspect, but he had no genuine interest in domestic comfort though his ideas about tea were laudable. His study was like a market square. Undergraduates came into it at nearly all hours to discuss the intellectual news of the day. They came for breakfast, but I think that from ten to one he would not have them. During these hours he used his typewriter. His manner to young seekers after wisdom, and to young men who were prepared to teach him a thing or two, was divine. I have sat aside on the sofa and listened to dozens of these interviews. They were touching, in the eager crudity of the visitors, the mature, suave, wide-sweeping sagacity and experiences of the director of studies, and the fallacious but charming equality which the elder established and maintained between the two. On Saturday nights a discussing society, called the Socratics, met in his study. I only attended one meeting, and it was not a regular official meeting. I suspect that it was got up for my benefit. In part, the proceedings were right over my head, and in part beneath my feet. I have seldom heard wilder, intoxicating nonsense talk, and I have never heard more sweet and skillful wisdom from a chairman, nor a more Machiavellian apologetics for the sacred cause of common sense. Being entirely ignorant of university life, I saw all that Rivers showed me with fresh eyes, and I used to criticize with perhaps undue freedom. The reception of my hasty animadversions by a swell of such dimensions was astounding in its forbearance. 
On the other hand, my enthusiasm for some of the new instructional methods gave a naive satisfaction to this great man. I did not really get to know Rivers till he came on board my yacht for a three-weeks cruise. I gravely warned him that only India rubber soles were allowed on my deck. In all other respects, he might dress like a Marquis and Islander for all I cared. When I met him on the pier at Southampton, lo, he was already wearing tennis shoes. Staggered by this excess of zeal, I said, You don't mean to say you've traveled down in those. No, he said, but I put them at the top of my bag and changed in the taxi. I said to myself, This man is a great traveler. In the first hour on the yacht, he proved that he knew perfectly how to adapt himself to an environment. At intervals, he would mention some of the devices he employed on his extraordinary travels in the ends of the earth. He must have been through severe privations, but then, to my mind, all his life was a privation, or rather a subordination of everything else to his main purpose. He was a finished adept in the art, which few men of genius or talent acquire in a high degree, of organizing his resources and retaining a true perspective. It was my custom on the yacht to have my morning tea in the deckhouse at 6.30, alone. After a day or two, I found him carrying his tea upstairs to join me. He had not suspected that this was my hour for organizing my day's work, that I desired the society of nobody on earth until nine o'clock. I saw that I must make the supreme sacrifice. My virtue of a host was mightily rewarded. Those talks, which occurred every morning, constituted the most truly educational experience I have ever had. Rivers seemed to know something about everything, and a lot about nearly everything. If you wanted the name of the unsuccessful candidate at a by-election at Stockport in 1899, he would tell you. But it was less his universal knowledge that impressed me than his lovely gift of coordinating apparently unrelated facts. And it was less his gift of coordination that impressed me than the beauty, comeliness, and justness of his general attitude towards life. Also refreshing was the complete absence of conventional replies in his conversation. I said to him, What infuriates me and you savants is that you do know. You have exact knowledge. A novelist is condemned to know nothing about anything. Most people would have replied deprecating such self-abasement and assuring you that really you knew a devil of a lot. Rivers said simply, Yes, I see it's inevitable. I cannot remember many of his judgments. He criticized Freud freely, but always insisted that he was a great man. On the new Nancy school, he was rather cautious, but he mistrusted it. He would say with an indescribable mild causticity, I bet you some of those fellows are suggesting things to themselves all day. I broke out once into ferocious strictures upon the confused unreadableness of the final edition of the Golden Bough. To my surprise, he agreed in the main, but he would not quite admit that it was a skyscraper built on a supposition. He said the first edition did contain a comprehensible something. He was thrilling on the subject of the self-protective nature of shell-shock and kindred disorders. A doctor of medicine, he had little belief in current therapeutics. He said, apropos of a recent indisposition, I thought I'd better call in the magician and he prescribed something or other. Anyhow, I got better. 
all civilized society was a sort of South Sea Island to him. He had a fine kindly wit, which he used sparingly. He would not say to me, when's your next novel coming out? He would say, when shall we have your next textbook of psychology? He read enormously throughout the cruise, assimilating big book after big book and estimating them as he went on. Once he was seasick, he just obeyed the tyrannic command and returned to his seat and went on reading. He could read for hours without getting fidgety. He only failed on one occasion to realize my conception of his imaginative vigor. We went ashore at Torquay, and contrary to discipline, he left the porthole of his cabin open. A southwest wind arose and kicked up a sudden sea in two minutes, as it will in Torbay, and when we got back the bed was soaked through, and his dress clothes also. I supported with fortitude the damage to his dress clothes, but a bed soaked in salt water can never be used again. Yet the fortitude with which I supported his infelicity was as nothing to the fortitude with which he supported mine. I have a spare bed on board, I said. Oh, he said nonchalantly, that's fortunate. His imagination had failed to show him that he had been very naughty. As a fact, he had little use for beds except as a locus for early morning reflection upon psychological theories. I thought at first that he had almost no interest in women, but once when I expressed the view that the segregation of the sexes in university life was a dreadful thing, and that the professed disdainful attitude of undergraduates towards girls was equally deplorable, he surprised me by the candor and warmth of his concurrence. He said the difficulty was to find a way out. He had never been able to think of a way out. He agreed that he himself didn't see enough of women. I said I would give a dance on board for him to look at. It took place on a heavenly evening in the Solon, with a marvelous sunset, and the sea as flat as a page of Clement Shorter, and as beautiful as a poem by Ralph Hodgson, the young women came off with their cavaliers in canoes and boats. He was fascinated. He said it was something quite strange to him. In Europe, the young women mistook him for a non-entity. Not one of them had ever heard of him. He enjoyed that. The next morning, his remarks on the social phenomenon were pricelessly Marquesan. This was the last real talk I had with him. End of W. H. R. Rivers, Some Recollections by Arnold Bennett